Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for the privilege it is to belong to you, to, to know you, to be a part of your family. Lord, we ask that you would help us to not only hear your word, but be doers of your word. Open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in your word. Open our eyes. Give us understanding. Shed your light. Shine your light on your holy word. Keep us, Father, from buying into, Lord, misconceptions and other ideas that we might be tempted to lay over your word. Instead, God, break through it all and speak your truth to us, we pray today. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of the message this morning is A Blind Man's Confession. Have you ever been asked to do this two-step verification on your Google account or maybe another online account? You know what I'm talking about? You have to enter your password, but that's not enough for security reasons. They want to send you another, like, secret set of digits to your phone that you then enter in, and the whole idea is that it protects you from fraud. You ever, you ever done that? The two-step verification. Okay. Well, both stories today in Mark chapter 8 require a, a sort of two-step verification, and the first story is going to illustrate the second. So let's read in Mark chapter 8. We'll begin in verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, And some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. And then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his father's glory with the holy angels. Two stories that require a two-step verification. Out of the crowds, 
emerges a group of people who bring their blind friend by the hand to the healer, begging Jesus to touch him. There was no hope apart from this. It was now or never. The one who healed the deaf and the mute, the blind, the lame, the one who provided for thousands just using a few loaves, he was standing in front of them. What does Jesus do? He spits in his eyes. It's kind of odd, right? It's not all he does. He took the blind man by the hand, and I love that. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. What was he saying to the blind man as he was walking out of the village? What conversations were they having about fear and faith? Well, as they get outside the village and he spit on the man's eyes and he put his hands on him and Jesus asked, do you see anything? Some think uh, that saliva was a therapeutic or uh, medicinal thing. Maybe this was uh, just simply a point of contact for, for that, that man to bring out faith. We don't really know. There's a lot of speculation as to why Jesus actually spit into the man's eyes. But Jesus, we know, could have cured him with a word. But instead, he takes the man by the hand. He leads him out of the village. He's building up his faith. He's pushing against unbelief, undoubtedly. And he asks, do you see anything? And, and we have to pause here and say, wait, did Jesus, did he doubt his ability to heal? Is that why he asked this question? And the answer is no. The question itself actually shows us that Jesus didn't anticipate the complete restoration of the man's sight to begin with. There's no lack of power coming from Jesus. This isn't a mistake. What did the man see? Well, he saw people walking around, but they they looked like trees walking around. And so in verses 25 and 26, once more Jesus lays his hands on the man's eyes, and and what happens? His eyes were opened. There's that two-step verification happening in this story of the blind man receiving his sight. It took more than just one step. But why is that? We'll get to that. His eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. He's starting to see clearly. Actually, he sees clear, crystal clear. All of a sudden, people aren't looking like trees anymore. They look like people. And Mark places this two-step verification story right here to illustrate the story that comes next. You see, the disciples up to this point are still not seeing Jesus clearly. There's a pattern of incomprehension and unbelief exhibited in the disciples. Now, I won't be preaching on Mark chapter 4, but there's this fantastic story of Jesus asleep in the boat with the disciples and they're crossing the lake and he told them we're going to the other side but this huge storm comes and they start to freak out and they wake him up and they say teacher don't you care if we drown are you familiar with that story it's one of my favorite don't you care they're asking the one who took on the stuff they're made of, who's asleep in their boat, who came to do for them what they couldn't do for themselves, who stepped into this broken world They asked him if he cared. Don't you care if we die, if we drown? And what does Jesus do next? He quiets the storm with his voice. He has power even over nature. They exhibited this great fear, this unbelief. There were other parts 
where they were frightened or astonished or they gained no insight when he was teaching and their hearts were actually hardened. And Jesus asks them, don't you understand? There was a pattern of incomprehension, a pattern of unbelief exhibited in the disciples. Their spiritual sight, their understanding, it didn't come instantly. It came gradually. Now, that might at first discourage you, but I hope it encourages you because it's not as if it just came instantly for all of us here. Like all of a sudden we hear the the truth of Jesus and we understand everything about Jesus from day one. It doesn't work like that. There's a gradual understanding of who he is and his claim on our life and what it means to follow him. None of us have arrived. Sorry, (laughs) none of us. There's always something to learn, always an area to grow and to be challenged in. But the disciples just at this point just are not seeing Jesus clearly. And so we see this second story that requires a two-step verification begin to unfold. And Jesus opens his disciples' eyes. He opens their eyes to his identity. That's what he begins to do here. And we'll look again at verse 27. They came to Bethsaida and some people, uh, nope, not that one. Let's jump to verse 27. Like I said, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. Ah, but what about you? Who do you say I am? So until now, the disciples and the crowds have been asking, who is this man? But Jesus turns the question around on them. Who who do people say I am? So to equate Jesus with John or Elijah, as they're saying, well, some are saying this, others are saying that, to equate him with a prophet, it seems like a respectful category, doesn't it? A lot like the ones we hear today. Oh, he's the greatest teacher who ever lived. Or he's the greatest moral example. Or the greatest you fill in the blank. But these titles miss the mark. They miss the mark. They don't go far enough. So the questioning intensifies from Jesus. But what about you? Who do you say I am? Now the disciples had been with Jesus for some time. They'd observed his miracles. They sat under his teaching. They saw his life. And now they come face to face with the most important question that they would ever be asked. Now there are some really important questions out there. What should I name this child? Will you marry me? Should we subscribe to Hulu or Netflix? (laughs) Nothing compares to the question, though, that we find right here in Mark 8. Who do you say I am? Everything else stopped in that moment. Jesus had said, who do the people say I am? And he had heard what what the people were saying. And then he turns to the disciples and he's like, all right, enough. What about you? Who do you say I am? Because ultimately, it doesn't matter what others think about me. The only thing that matters in this moment is what you think about me, is essentially what he's saying. So who do you say I am? And here we see in verse 29, a blind man's confession. Peter speaking for the disciples. They all would have been in on this. They all would have believed this. He confesses. He says, you, you are the Christ. The Christ. It's a title. It's not Jesus' last name. You are the Messiah. You're the king we've been waiting for. Matthew 16 has the same account, and in it, it says that 
Jesus says to Peter after he makes this confession, this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. This is the turning point of the entire gospel of Mark. It's the hinge, we could say, on which the entire gospel turns. Everything Mark's been writing has led us to this moment. It's the central question of the entire book. And it's, it's, it's one of those moments in scripture where the characters of the story seem to disappear, at, at least for me, as I'm reading this story. It's a moment where it, it, just, it feels like just me and Jesus. Because the question that's directed at Peter is the, is, the, is the question of the book that's directed at you and me. Who do you say I am? Jesus asked Peter. He wants to hear from the disciples. But the book is asking us. Mark has brought us to this point. Who do we say Jesus is? And it actually brings an answer out of us all. We don't even have to say it. We don't have to express it. But inside, we're making decisions about who Jesus is right now. Or maybe we have. We're continuing to make decisions about who he is and how we're going to respond to who he is. It's happening. So this confession of Jesus as Messiah, because Christ is Messiah, same idea, same word, just one is Greek, one is Hebrew, and he's, he's saying, listen, you are the anointed one. You are the king that we've been waiting for. It's the beginning of true sight for the disciples. Jesus doesn't say, whoa, you've gone too far. No, you've got it wrong. He doesn't say uh, any, any of that. But what did Peter mean when they confessed Jesus as the Christ? He's using a word, as I said, that literally means anointed one. Now, kings were traditionally anointed with oil as a kind of uh, coronation. So the anointed one is the Messiah, the the Christ, Jesus, the anointed one. He's the king who would end all kings, who's going to put everything right. They, in saying he's the Christ, they were saying Jesus is the promised anointed one who would usher in the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises about this coming king, this coming deliverer. Yes, they've got it right. At least that part. They believed in calling him the Christ, that he was the conquering king. Yes, they've got it right. They believed in calling him the Christ, that he would rid them of Roman rule, that they were under and and establish an earthly kingdom, one in which he ruled from an earthly throne and would lead Israel, the nation, out of its earthly bondage. Well, not quite. That doesn't take it far enough. It was much deeper. It was much more profound than ridding the world of Roman rule and leading Israel out of bondage. Jesus didn't come to build a political kingdom. He didn't come to stir up this revolutionary zeal against Rome. And so it makes sense when Jesus warns them not to tell anyone else about him. They've got this partial sight. They don't see Jesus and his mission clearly. They understand he's the Christ. He is the anointed one. He's the promised one that the prophets said would come. But they've got some misconceptions they're carrying with them. They have an idea of what it's going to look like and how it's going to play out. And nothing could have prepared the disciples for what they heard next. Jesus begins to open their eyes now to his mission. Jesus has 
has been opening their eyes to his identity, but now he begins to open their eyes to his mission. Pick up in verse 30. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man, he refers to himself as the Son of Man, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. And after three days rise again, he spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So up to this point, the Gospel of Mark has been rapidly moving forward like an action movie. That's probably one of the reasons why I love this book so much. I mean, it's fast-paced. It moves from one scene to the next. And it does that all the way up to chapter 8. And after chapter 8, it slows down to a crawl. And it emphasizes the last week of Jesus' life. For the rest of the book, for the next eight chapters, it's emphasizing the very reason why Jesus came. Why do you think it emphasizes the last week of his life? Because it's the reason he came. He came to die. He came to die on the cross. And so there's even this emphasis in the amount of space that's given in the book. Here is the first of three predictions that Jesus gives regarding his death and resurrection. And with each prediction, we find the disciples just still not getting it. The idea of a crucified Messiah just throws the disciples into this daze. Peter didn't have a category for a crucified Messiah, a crucified deliverer. That just just didn't make sense to him. How could Jesus defeat evil by suffering and dying? It seemed ridiculous. It seemed impossible. It, It just didn't make sense. The cross, in their eyes, was a symbol of defeat for thieves and for criminals, for rebels, not for conquering kings. We don't really have a category for a crucified Messiah either. We all carry around with us our own set of expectations and misconceptions. It's true. A Messiah that will give us personal victory on our own terms. Freedom from our earthly sorrows, from our earthly pain. Now, I want it now. A Messiah that fulfills all our desires and dreams on our terms right now. We treat King Jesus as if he's a genie in a bottle. I got my three wishes. Do for me what I want. We'll actually see that next week when the disciples come to Jesus and say, we, we have something we want you to do for us. Crosses are everywhere. T-shirts, necklaces. You might have one on today. Buildings. We see crosses everywhere and no one is shocked an execution stake the message of the cross is crazy stupid to some but it's the power in the wisdom of god to others that's what paul says in first corinthians we read it first corinthians chapter one verse 18 for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it is the power of god For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. 
Jews, oh, they demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. Ah, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. The cross and the preaching of the cross is foolishness to many. But it is the power of God. My mother is, is legally blind. She has the lower left corner of her right eye, I believe. That's what sight she has. There was a time when mom had a corrective lens. It was a prism that that brought what she saw in her peripheral vision to the center. We need that kind of lens. That's exactly what the cross of Christ does for us. It brings the person and the purpose of Jesus from the sidelines to the center. We need to lay the lens of the cross over our eyes and let it correct our sight. We have a lot of misconceptions. We have a lot of things that we need to just lay at the foot of the cross and say before Jesus, help me to see. I need to see clearly. The heart of the gospel, the heart of the good news of Jesus is the cross. It's why he came. And so he makes this prediction. He's talking about what will happen. And Peter hears the words, suffer, rejected, killed, And so he he pulls Jesus aside and he rebukes him. He says, never, Lord. In Matthew's account in chapter 16, he says, never, Lord. This will never happen to you. In other words, he's saying, it doesn't have to be this way, Jesus. It's like he's saying, listen, the king we're expecting you to be, oh, that king's going to ascend a throne. The irony is that this king would take his throne on a cross. Peter thought God's kingdom would come in power and in majesty and in glory, in military might. Jesus knew it would come through rejection and humility and shame. Have you ever said to God, it doesn't have to be this way, offended by something that rubbed you the wrong way or pushed against everything you had had thought? Our protests always seem so justified and righteous at the moment, don't they? It doesn't have to be this way. Why is it this way, Lord? What what does Jesus say to Peter? He calls him Satan. I never called anyone Satan before. Adversary. Deceiver. The Satan. Get behind me. You're a stumbling block to me. That's what Jesus told Peter. Peter was doing such a good job, too. He had just confessed Jesus as the Christ. (laughs) In that moment, Peter stood in opposition to the entire reason Jesus came. Peter's mind was on the things of, of man, not on the things of God. Is your mind on the things of God or the things of man? Are you coming with your own agenda? Are you aware of the misconceptions that you might have when thinking about a relationship with Jesus? Well, finally, we see Jesus beginning to open their eyes to their mission. Jesus has begun to open their eyes to his identity 
and to his mission. And now Jesus begins to open their eyes to their mission, to their cross. Let's read it. Verse 34, then he called the crowd to him along with the disciples and he said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. We'll pause there. Crucifixion is a shocking metaphor for discipleship throughout the New Testament. A disciple of Jesus must deny himself. He must or she must take up his cross and embrace God's will no matter what the cost. If you want to follow Jesus, this is a requirement. You must. It's not like, well, if you want to, you can take up your cross. If you want to, you can deny yourself. You must. There are some requirements here that Jesus lays out. You must do this if you're going to follow Jesus. Now, the goal of self-denial and taking up your cross is, is being free to follow King Jesus. Self-denial means letting go of self-rule and replacing it with obedience to and dependence on Jesus. Are you willing to do this? Have you done that? You know, our confession of Jesus being the Christ, if we agree with Peter and the disciples, it comes with a claim on our life. What does that mean? It's as if Jesus... In proclaiming him as the Christ, it's as if he's turning it around and saying, if you want to follow me as Christ, well, you've got to come to the cross too. You've got to bear your own cross. And so he makes the comparison. Let's just say you could have the whole world. I love the comparisons Jesus makes. You could have the whole world Let's just say you get the whole world, but you lose your soul. What good is it? It's a good comparison. You got it all. You could have the life of your dreams, the wife of your dreams, all the cars, all the homes, all the money, all the fun, all the notoriety, everything. You've got it all. Let's say you could have it all and more. Whatever you could dream of, but you lose your soul, what good is it? Make the comparison. Make the comparison. Taking up our cross and following Jesus, it requires faith in the one who invites us to do it, that it's actually for our good, that he has our best interests at heart. He's not doing this to punish us. He's doing this so that we might find treasure beyond our understanding in him. You see, the whole world is a lesser treasure than finding our joy and hope in Christ. We could gain it all, but it's a lesser treasure than, than seeing Jesus for who he is in his glory and splendor. To make the comparison. You know, taking up your cross, it, just, it isn't just one big scary sacrifice and then you're done with it, like giving up a kidney or helping that guy push his car to the side of the road that one time. It's something you do every day of your life. And I have to ask myself, listen, every time I read the, the, the call that Jesus has in our life, I have to ask myself, am I following this way? Or am I trying to take the lead? And, and I think that's good. We, we need to ask that as we're reading. Because I don't have this down. I'm not like doing this faithfully every single day of my life, but I want to. I want to lean into that and say, Jesus, teach me how to take up my cross daily and follow you. I want to get away from this, this, this draw to, to rule myself. 
And I want to bow to you and to your rule. And I want to believe it's a good and loving rule. One that's looking out for my best interest. Am I following or trying to take the lead? A good response, I think, to these two stories today would be a prayer that maybe it looks like this. Jesus, please heal my blindness to your identity and mission. Jesus, please heal my blindness to the call you've placed on my life. Jesus, heal my blindness to the claim you have on my life and to the joy and the life found in taking up my cross and following you. Oh, he'll do it. He'll open your eyes to the reality of life in him. Do you see anything, Jesus asked the blind man when he touched him the first time, when he spit on his eyes? Do you see anything? Do you see anything? And who do you say I am are essentially the same question. Do you see anything? And who do you say I am? See, in in these stories, seeing is believing. And Christ is the one who will lay his hand on our eyes and help us to see clearly. He'll do that for us today. You see, I believe that there are people that are on the brink of seeing Jesus for who he really is. You've been with us for a few weeks. You've been studying the scriptures with us and you're seeing Jesus as the king and you're leaning in and you're hearing that question asked of you today, who do you say I am? And you're saying you're the Christ. You're the Christ. But there's a lot of misconceptions you're carrying and you've got to lay those down. And for others, you might be, hey, I've I've embraced Jesus as the Christ for 20 years. But you might need a second touch today because you've not been taking up your cross. You've not been understanding that he has a claim on your life, but you're seeing it in a fresh way today. Let him do his work. Let me pray for us. Open our eyes, Lord, we pray. Open our eyes to the reality of who you are, your identity, that you are king. Open our eyes, Jesus, to your mission. Open our eyes, Jesus, to the calling on our our lives to take up our cross and follow you. Help us to see that in that is life. Help us to trust that the one who invites us to do it, that you are full of love and grace. And that in doing it, we find joy and treasure beyond compare in you. So Father, I pray for each one in this room, Lord, for those who might feel really far off from you, but are leaning in and they're seeing you for who you are in a fresh way. God, would you draw them to yourself? I pray they'd make it real with you today that they would call on your name and be saved. And that for all of us in this room, Lord, who profess and who confess you as King, Jesus, help us to get away from our own misconceptions and to ask, are we following Are we taking up our cross? Are we willing to find true life and to lay down our own? Do that work in us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.